The word of God from Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Ronnie to come forward and introduce our preacher this morning. All right, Murari, come on up. You guys, you may be seated. Um, so uh, Denver Presbyterian Church is a part of a network called the Western Church Planting Network. And this network is seeking to church uh, or to plant churches um, out here in the front range and um, they, we deeply desire to plant Spanish-speaking churches as well. And I, um, so our network was like, do we know a guy who's ever planted a Spanish-speaking church before? And they looked, and I was like, the only dude. So um, for those of you who don't know me, I have preached more in Spanish than I have in English. Um, but you've only heard, ever heard me preach in English. And uh, so I have had the, we have had the pleasure of receiving Marari and his wife, Megan, this summer, they're doing an internship. Uh, Marari is a California kid, L.A. He's a Guatemalteco. Um, and he is presently in his final year at Western Theological Seminary in Hope, Michigan. And uh, we just have the great pleasure and privilege of having him with us. He uh, will be preaching at the table next week. And then they'll return to Michigan. And so... Uh, this guy doesn't have too many sermons in his uh, pocket. He's a, he's a rookie, so take it easy on him. And uh, Murari, we're so glad that you're here. We see God's calling upon your life. And uh, let me pray for you, and I'll leave you alone. How's that sound? All right. Father, thank you for Murari and for Megan. And thank you for how you are preparing them for a lifetime in ministry. Uh, watch over him, and uh, may he experience joy as he brings your word to us. And may he find in us a softness, a tenderness to learn and to grow, that we would all love Jesus more now than ever. For we pray in Jesus' name. All right, big guy, like I tell all my interns, don't mess this up. Nothing. Oh, there we go. Okay. Well, third time's a charm, so we, uh, we made it. Well, it's been a joy to be in Colorado this, uh, this summer. Really thankful uh, to the leadership here for, uh, for uh, the opportunity to uh, be here and do this internship. As uh, Ronnie mentioned, my wife and I are currently living in Michigan, and uh, my wife is originally from Colorado, and so it's been a blessing to be here with family 
and to explore nature, creation. I mean, it's, it's beautiful out here. And uh, you've got something really good going on out here. And, uh, and so thankful to be, to, to, to be here. If I break out speaking in Spanish, I'm preaching to Ronnie and not to the rest of you. <laughs> but uh, yes, looking forward to what the Lord has in store for us this morning. When we think of God as a fortress, um, you've all been in, in the Psalms this summer. And the Psalms are filled with poetic language about the Lord and his protection for his people. And we hear words like God being a fortress, a refuge, a mighty tower. And sometimes we can get lost in the poetic words, the poetic language of Scripture, that it might seem a bit too abstract many times as to what that looks like in our lives. But as we'll see in our psalm this morning, in the background there are some real, real struggles that the writers went through and from which these psalms, these, these prayers, the, these petitions, complaints arise. And so Psalm 3, as the superscription says of the psalm, is a psalm of David when he was being persecuted by his son Absalom, no less. So, from the onset, we can feel where the tension is going to be in the psalm. And it's a betrayal. It's a psalm where there's betrayal that's been experienced by David. And betrayal captures our imaginations many times. I mean, you only have to go into uh, Apple Podcasts to see that the top podcasts are true crime podcasts. And oftentimes, those are just stories of betrayal. And... The result of betrayal or the vengeance that betrayal oftentimes elicits. And so, art is full of stories of betrayal. We can think of Julius Caesar. And if I remember the story correctly or the movie correctly, you have that moment where Julius Caesar is betrayed by the Senate. And that climactic moment where he's being assassinated in the Senate, and then his closest friend comes. And Julius Caesar's words are, you too, Brutus? A too, Brutus? And you can feel the betrayal in that moment. Or every Christmas season, we're reminded of Herod the Great. And Herod's story is one of grasping, grasping power and wanting to keep that power. So much so that if he ever got a whiff of betrayal, any conspiracy emerging, he would kill even his closest relatives. He killed a couple of his sons just because he suspected betrayal. And of course, that moment in Scripture where the Magi come to him and, he say, and they tell him, we've come to worship the king of the Jews. To the king of the Jews, they're telling him this, right? So what does Herod the Great do? Well, he says, go find him. And when you find him, bring me back word so that I might worship him too which is not really his intention to worship Jesus, but it was to kill him. And so that's exactly what we see in the narrative, in the story. Herod the Great killing all the children under two years old because he sensed sedition. And so ancient kings like David were always targets of betrayal. And our psalm today emerged out of that same experience after Absalom served two years of house arrest for the killing of his brother Amnon. Instead of taking the time to repent 
be remorseful, reflect on what he had done, he takes the time instead to what? Build a conspiracy against his father, David. But it's David's response to Absalom's betrayal that sets him apart. And our response to similar situations also would tell us apart. I mean, we're all in different in relationships. We're human beings. And at one time or another, we've been maybe not betrayed, but we've been wronged. Or maybe there are people that you've estranged and pushed aside because maybe they're toxic. So if you've ever held a grudge, that means you've been wronged in some way. And the deepest hurts and heartbreaks come out of the closest relationships. But our response to those hurts and our engagement of God can bring comfort, peace, and praise. And so this psalm gives us a way forward from our grudges, from people who have wronged us. And we can find freedom to move forward. And so consider this chapter with me under four headings. First, an invitation to be honest with God. Two, invitation to depend on God's protection. Three, an invitation to experience God's peace. And lastly, an invitation to entrust your enemies to a saving God. So first, an invitation to be honest with God. In 2013, there was a movie that was released called Lone Survivor. It was also a book. And the story captures a SEAL team that was in the mountains of Afghanistan where they were sent to gather intelligence and to capture a Taliban leader. Now, as they're doing the rec reconnaissance mission, they get discovered by villagers. Now, the team didn't know if these were friendlies or maybe they were enemies. So they capture them, they gather them, they arrest them, keep them in custody, and they question them. And after questioning them, these men are released because the SEAL team thought, well, they don't seem like they're in league with the Taliban leader, only to discover that they, <laughs> they were betrayed. And then this Taliban leader just unleashes his forces on the SEAL team. Now, it is at this point that they find themselves betrayed by these men. They had questioned them, they had released them, thinking they're friendlies when they were not. And the stakes were high because now it's a small team versus a large team of enemies. Likewise, for David, the stakes were high. And when the stakes were high, he finds himself not turning to his expertise as a fighter, as a military commander, but he turns to the Lord. And so our passage opens up with David on the run. And while he's on the run, we get to hear his complaint, his cry to the Lord. And so he says this about Absalom's conspiracy. Listen to what he says in verse 1. David says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. So we see, we hear in David's prayer, honesty. Absalom's conspiracy was executed in a few ways. First, he took with him 50 men. Then he took it upon himself to undermine his father's rule throughout the kingdom of Israel. Absalom undermined his father's rule by becoming judge. Now this is kind of far from our experience of government because we have, of course, a republic where we have branches of government that check one another. But in ancient times, 
The king was the guy who created decrees, signed the decree, and it was established as law. And he was also a judge. And so he would oversee settlements between people or disputes between people and come to a settlement. And so Absalom found a way then to undermine his father by being the one who was going to settle disputes and thereby earn the favor of the people. And so Absalom begins to gather people after himself. In this story we can read of in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 15, and it is in the same chapter that Absalom undermined his father David by also causing division among his retinue. That is, the guard that David kept. The passage tells us that with Absalom went, went 200 men who were unaware of Absalom's plan to betray his father. Now, so far, to my count, Absalom has, has gathered about 250 men. Moreover, Absalom takes with him one of the wisest and most trusted counselors that David had in his, let's call it, cabinet. And this man's name was Ahithophel. Now, the Bible tells us in this same uh, book of 2 Samuel that going to Ahithophel for counsel was like conferring, seeking counsel from God's word itself. And so you can sense where David's desperation grows. And why he cries to the Lord that his enemies are many. He is being betrayed by his son he loves. And this son whom he loves is amassing followers and turning the hearts of the people of Israel against David. So we can sense and we can see that the stakes are very high. And then enemy, David's enemies up the ante because they accuse David of this. And David has heard this. And he says to the Lord, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Again, David has been betrayed by Absalom, a son whom he dearly loves. Absalom has rallied many men after him, which has caused David to flee. And on top of that, there is a falsehood raised against David by saying that he has no salvation in God, the only being that he has left. How do you react when you have been wronged? Oftentimes, when it comes to men, we were kind of raised in a culture many times, especially I, who was, born, who was raised in a Hispanic context. Men are not taught to show their emotions, their feelings. They're taught to suppress them. And I also grew up in, a, in an austere kind of church environment where your thanksgiving, your petitions were allowed to be brought before God but don't come with too many feelings. But here we see David, a man of war, betrayed, and he can come to the Lord and just pour out his heart. A man of valor, of military might, just pouring his heart to the Lord. It's instructive to us to be honest with the Lord, to come to the Lord with all of our cares, especially when we have been wronged. Not to be in denial, not to suppress, but to be able to speak our heart and pour out our hearts before the Lord. In fact, in Psalm 56, the same writer David says that the Lord keeps his tears in a bottle. I don't know many manly men who would write something like that, but here David is able to express himself. 
And so when the stakes are higher, our passage invites us to be honest with God in our deepest heartbreaks. But what does David say in contrast to his enemy's accusation? Well, this passage, this chapter also invites us to depend on God's protection. Now, like Ronnie said, I'm from L.A. I grew up in California, and California is what's called many times earthquake country. And growing up, I recall being in school and, and, and having earthquake drills. And this was a once-a-semester kind of drill where we were taught to find a sturdy place like a doorway or a desk and kind of crawl under it. And in fact, I remember, I think it was the late 80s, I was really young, and an earthquake happened during the day, and sure enough, we were, it was like second nature to us, like all kids under the desk. But in 1995, there was the Northridge earthquake. And this earthquake happened really early in the morning. And I recall that it was about maybe 5 a.m. in the morning, and you can just begin to feel the, the earth move. And it was pretty violent. I mean, this was an earthquake that caused bridges to fall and to buildings to collapse. And I remember I was deathly afraid of earthquakes, and I feel the ground shaking. I slept on the top, top bunk of a bunk bed, and somehow through the fog of sleep just like did some sort of somersault, ran to my parents' room and just collapsed into my father's arms. It is in my father's arms that I found the protection that I needed from something I could never control myself. In the face of Absalom's threat and betrayal, how does David react? Well, he runs to the Lord. He runs into the arms of the faithfulness of God's protection. How does he do that? David says in verses 3 to 4, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David starts by recalling with covenantal language who God is to him. David, who was a man whom God set apart and with whom God made a covenant, David is able to recall these promises and recite them to the Lord. And he says, first, he says that God is his shield and his glory. And you'll recall that this is the same language that the Lord uses with Abraham when Abraham, another man, in a time of need and desire who wanted children but couldn't have children, the Lord comes to him and he says, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward is very great. And so David is able to claim these promises to himself too, and he recites them to the Lord. And second, in contrast to what David's enemies say about David, David confesses this. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. The enemies say there is no salvation for him in God. David says to the contrary, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David knows with certainty that God will listen to him. God who dwells on Mount Zion is sure to hear his servant David. And we see a contrast here between the first two verses and these and verses 3 and 4, where David is telling to the Lord, many are my enemies, and this is what they're saying of me. And the contrast in verses 3 to 4 is there's one being, one person that he can trust in the most, and who is all-powerful, all-knowing. 
And so to whose arms do we run? To whose arms do you run for this protection? In this, we also see a poverty of spirit, don't we? Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And it is oftentimes very hard for us to recognize our poverty in spirit. And so we run to therapy, which is great. It's great to, to, to have someone who has the specialty in hearing the deepest needs of our heart and to be able to help us to walk through difficult relationships. But oftentimes, there are people that I know that I grew up with who in their poverty didn't have a chance to say, well, let me go to a therapist. So what does a person like that do? To whom do they run when they have a hardship like this? Well, this passage is inviting us to run to the protection of the Lord. And so, so far, when the stakes are high, this psalm invites us to be honest with God. It also invites us to run to the protection of God. Next, this psalm is an invitation to experience God's peace. And in difficult situations, difficult relationships, peace many times seems very elusive, doesn't it? A few years ago, my family and I had the opportunity to uh, fly to Guatemala, and we did a layover in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the plane takes off, and at a certain point, we discovered that the plane was just not advancing in a straight, linear fashion. It was just going in circles, and it kept going in circles, and it did this for about 45 minutes of just going in circles. And finally, the captain gets on the PA and says that there was something wrong with the landing gear of the airplane, and so they had been going in circles to burn fuel, because if they landed, there could have been the possibility of, of a disaster. Now, this is a plane full of Hispanic people, and Hispanic people can be very extra. <laughs> and so uh, as soon as we hear that from the captain, I mean, people from, like, different Christian backgrounds began to pray somehow, right? I mean, you had the Roman Catholics who maybe would half-heartedly pray the Lord's Prayer at Mass. I mean, in this plane, they were doing it like it was like go time. Like, <laughs> now, we, now we have to pray this Lord's Prayer. If there was Pentecostal people there, which there were plenty, I mean, they just burst out speaking in tongues. And needless to say, I definitely whispered to pray. I'm like, Lord, if this is, this is the end, then, you know, you're in control. And but at the same time, I noticed that the flight crew, the flight attendants, were not reacting at all. Like, in that moment, I thought, what do they know that we don't know? They were so peaceful while the rest of us were just, just panicking. We had lost it. Well, they kind of had a peace that Jesus had when he was in the boat. You recall that when Jesus went across the sea, a storm breaks out, and Everyone in that boat was like the, in that airplane that I was in. Everyone was panicking, and, and the boat, the narrative tells us that the boat was about to break. And where do they find Jesus? Jesus was found asleep, of all things, asleep in peace. And they had to wake him up and say, Lord, do you not see that we are perishing? 
And I would imagine that moment, Jesus was a little bit bugged, right? Like, I was napping. Like, why are you waking me up? Just to calm the storm. And that's the kind of peace that this passage invites us to. So how do you feel in the face of threat? Well, we see David's experience the benefits of the protection that he has from the Lord. But we see David experience peace that defies, that surpasses understanding, given, given the, facts, the facts of the situation. Here, what verses 5 and 6 say. David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Remember, David has just fled his son, Absalom, who has built for himself a following. In fact, in 2 Samuel 15, Absalom gives orders to proclaim himself king at Hebron. So, not only has Absalom earned the hearts of the people, he has also established a new capital city. But what is David's reaction in the face of all of this? It's peace. But not any peace. This is a peace that surpasses all understanding. This is peace and defiance of the threat to his kingdom and to his own life. Listen again to what he confesses. I lay down and I slept. That act alone in the face of trouble is amazing. David is able to close his eyes and sleep in peace. And he continues, I woke again. For the Lord sustained me. He did not rely on his own bodyguards or his skill. No, he was able to sleep like a baby in the face of persecution. He could have said what he told Saul when Goliath was confronting the armies of Israel. He could have said, you know, when the bear went and got a lamb, I saved the lamb from the bear's jaw. Or if a lion came, I saved the lamb from the lion's he didn't rely on his own expertise or skill. He relied on the Lord's protection. Also, when he was persecuted by Saul, he was no stranger to fleeing for persecution. And there's a whole psalm written about this too, Psalm 18. And David finishes his confession by noting this, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The image that David is presenting us here, and he, what he's impressing on our minds, is of a man being surrounded by his enemies, his enemies pointing all of their weapons at him. But he's at peace, not flinching, not worried at all, but trusting God. Now, can you imagine a peace like this when relationships are strained? If you're like me, you found yourself many times in the middle of the night maybe staring at the ceiling, unable to sleep, with no peace at strained relationships or those who have wronged you. And here, David is inviting us to a deep peace, to a trust in the Lord that he himself had in the face of death. And so, when the stakes are high, the psalm is inviting us to be honest with God. It's also an invitation to us to run to the protection of of God, and it's an invitation to experience the peace of God. Lastly, this psalm is an invitation to entrust your enemies to a saving God. And this is 
oftentimes the hardest part to do for us is to let go and to trust someone else. A few years ago, I had a, I had a truck that I really loved. And one evening I came home from being with friends and I came to discover that my, my truck had a missing tailgate. Now, in the grand scheme of things, a tailgate means nothing. But I had set my heart on this truck that I love so much that whoever this person was that stole the tail, tailgate of my truck all of a sudden became my enemy. A faceless, nameless person to me became my enemy. So much so that I harbored bitterness to this person I never knew. And I must admit that in, in that experience, I, I prayed some prayers under my breath that were not good toward that person. <laughs> I mean, after the cops came and took the report and there was no, there was no peace after the, the police came and took the report because they couldn't do anything. I was just so angry. And you see, because David can rest in the, God's protection, he can also call on God to save him from his enemies. He says in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. In this passage, there is intimacy and reassurance in David's cry for help. Intimacy, since he calls God by his covenant name. This is the God who, who has made a covenant with David to establish his kingdom and a covenant that God will not break and cannot break. And David is able to also profess his reassurance since he calls Yahweh his God. And now we arrive at the hardest part of the psalm because this psalm is also an imprecation. Now, an imprecation is a prayer of curse on someone. Now, those who may, are not Christian oftentimes read these passages, and these passages can cause someone to question God, God's character, and some of the characters in, in Scripture, because how could you pray evil on someone? And will God answer that kind of, that kind of prayer? But again, because we're removed by culture and by years from these contexts, we need to understand that the king, especially King David, was a representative for the people of Israel. And if the king succeeded and he obeyed God, those blessings also flowed to the people. Now, if the king also failed to obey God, the consequences of his disobedience also fell on the people. And so he is able to cry out to the Lord. And he says, For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. The NIV version says more of, is more of an imperative, where David says, Strike my enemies. Break their teeth. But again, we need to look closer at this passage and understand that David is entrusting his enemies to the Lord. He is not taking matters into his own hands. David is, not trusting, David is trusting God with what to do with his enemies, who are also Israel's enemies. And in this, we see David's humanity and his request as he takes what could be his desire for vengeance to the Lord. David is not taking matters into his own hands, but is trusting God, who is just, 
the creator of heaven and earth, the one who put David on the throne and is the one who can keep him on the throne or not. Either way, he trusts God. And this is also what we see in Romans chapter 12, isn't it? Where Paul gives instruction to the Romans and he says this in chapter 12. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that is what David is doing. And why can he entrust his enemies to the Lord? Well, he closes the chapter this way. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David places his confidence on God to whom the kingdom of Israel belongs anyway. And so, if we're honest with ourselves, we have felt a deep anger with those who have wronged us in any way, shape, or form to the point where we imagine all sorts of evil against them or maybe even just retribution. And like me, you might have prayed some sort of imprecatory prayer under your breath or wished that something bad would happen to some person. But this psalm invites us to take those prayers to God who is just and who will carry out justice better than we can if it were left up to us. So we can pray prayers, Lord, I put my ax in your hands. Or my business partner who cost, who cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. This psalm invites us. It invites you and me to do one, one of the most difficult things that we can do many times. And that is let go of, of our sense of vengeance and confrontation and trust God who is just and righteous. It's not an invitation to be in denial, but to acknowledge and recognize the difficulty of the situation and trust the Lord. And so the psalm invites us again to be honest with God and invites us to know God's protection to experience his peace, and lastly, to entrust our enemies to God. But what if you have been the one who has hurt someone? What if you have been the one who has betrayed or who has wronged someone or hurt someone? What if you are the Absalom in the story? I want you to be open to the fact that you have committed cosmic sedition against the king. You see, from the moment that Adam and Eve took from the fruit of the tree and the fall took effect, all humanity is born as enemies of God. In our self-centeredness and self-sufficiency, we in effect remove God from his rightful place as king and we put ourselves as supreme over our lives. But enter Jesus, the God of the universe, the greater David, the son of David, who was betrayed by one of his closest friends. You'll remember that Judas was in Jesus' inner circle. 
It is to him that Jesus said, I no longer call you a servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friend. And this friend betrayed Jesus. And when Jesus prayed to the Father as he anticipated this betrayal, he was not hurt by the Father, but faced the scourge and the cross for the sake of his enemies. You and me. For what reason? For reconciliation. Paul writes to the Romans this in chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. How does Christ deal with his enemies? He reconciles them. He shows them love. And on the cross, he also defeated our enemies. That, as we are united with him, we do not need to fear our enemies. And when we face betrayal, we are wronged. Remember, Christ faced the greatest betrayal to bring us peace. Please pray with me. Kind, merciful Savior, we thank you that you brought to us reconciliation, that you displayed your love for us on the cross, that you said not a word when accused, but like a lamb was taken to the slaughter to bring peace, reconciliation, between we who are sinners and a holy God and to also bring reconciliation among friends, family, those with whom we come in contact. So Lord, help us to turn to you, to open up ourselves to you, to be honest, to bring our tears to you, knowing that you are our God who hears and a God who acts and of God of salvation. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.